You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Kafka-esque is the only way one reporter could describe it. The sound of helicopter blades, rocket fire, and Bing Crosby's White Christmas blasting through the city streets. Saigon, April 1975. Thousands of people gathered, grappling the iron fence around the American embassy, hoping to be let in. More people inside, their belongings scattered around what was once the luxurious swimming pool used to entertain journalists and embassy guests to keep them cool in the hot country. Bing Crosby's crooning. As the voice said, the temperature in Saigon is 105 degrees. It wasn't. That was code. And the code meant, get out of Saigon now. South Vietnam, protectorate of the United States, was about to not exist. I'm dreaming of a why. The crowd intensified through the city. More helicopters. They want over the gates of the embassy. Some are pushed back. They must have papers. Of a white Christmas. The song is part of the code. But people in the streets figured it out and showed up to the embassy. Please, they said to the Marines. I have money. I have gold. No dice. Only those with the proper paperwork from the U.S. Embassy for evacuation got in. Canadian visas some had. Not good enough. If you can't take me, take my child. There was nothing one of the Marines stationed there said you could do. Over the transom, pulled by Marines, the deputy prime minister of the country. Just like the ones I used to. Embassy staff starts incinerating money. U.S. currency. No reason to give the enemy any more money. They'd end up burning $5 million. It went from high anxiety to controlled panic, said a Marine who was there. Word is sent to the USS Hancock nearby for more Marines for crowd control. They'd arrive by copter, and the copters would fill up again and again. In an operation, frequent wind that was to be executed from the White House, by pre- ordered by President Ford, and by local military led by General Richard Carey, in control of the remaining American force left in Saigon post-accords. Not many. Negotiations had continued, and the North Vietnamese made it clear through their emissaries and through troops exchanging fire on them. They were taking the capital city of South Vietnam and taking it now. Peter Arnett, who is now an AP correspondent, would later become part of CNN, remembered how they let everyone know. 
I'll never forget my 4 a.m. wake-up call and the hotel, an artillery barrage from Soviet-made equipment. As I reached for my glass of water, it trembled, and so did I. Normally, there should be two more hours of darkness at this time. Not today. It was like a new dawn rising, Arnett said. Flames from the bombing of Saigon's airport lit up the sky. Now, wake journalist instincts in gear. It doesn't take long for Arnett to confirm that this is a serious problem for America's plan to evacuate thousands of supportive allied South Vietnamese to safety before South Vietnam collapses to evacuate them in large fixed-wing cargo aircraft from the airport. With that bombing, option one is out. The ambassador, Graham Martin, doesn't believe it. He goes in a motorcade and sees it with his own eyes and confirms it. There is no runway there anymore. Option two, option three is exhausted. As it turns out, a South Vietnamese pilot had defected and seeking to be an instant hero in his new country, dropped his payload on the airport. It wouldn't be the only defection that day. The operation switches to helicopters. There will be 13 pickup sites arranged through the city. The major ones will be the airport, where the U.S. Defense Department attache office is. As a backup, the U.S. Embassy. Saigon 1975. It's in the news again, and of course, because of the recent evacuation in Kabul and comparisons, you know, this is by Saigon, etc. And probably if you're like most people or like many news media, the image that you will have or be presented to you will be that image of a lone copter on the roof of what looks like the U.S. Embassy with a ladder with desperate people clinging for that helicopter and being sent away as the helicopter takes off the last helicopter in Saigon. Of course, this image is shot by UPI journalist Herbert Van S. And there's a couple things wrong. It's not the embassy, as most people think. It's the Pittman apartment roof, a place for CIA and diplomats, one of those 13 sites. And it is not the last copter out of Saigon. Uh, the image is real, though. And it's certainly become useful for the symbolism of the failure of America's intervention in Vietnam, of the death, of the destruction, of the pointlessness, of the bad strategy at times, of the inability to sustain South Vietnam as a country. It's become useful symbolism for, for those larger mistakes. But this should be known, and it's really important in the context that people are discussing today when they talk about this is this president, Saigon, etc., you know. April 29th and April 30th, 1975, was not by any objective means a failure. It was a successful military mission, the most successful and largest helicopter evacuation in its time. You know, it's been said Americans respond too much to videos, and I think they do. In the past, it was probably too much to still photos, and there you have it. But back to it. At 12 noon, the order is given. Ambassador Graham Martin sends his wife on a copter to an aircraft carrier that will take her to Manila. He insists on staying behind. He wants to ensure and personally supervise a smooth evacuation from the nation that he's represented America to as an ally. He's got a side agenda. He thinks he can negotiate with incoming North Vietnamese or some combo of who's left and who's coming in. He thinks he can keep a U.S. Embassy presence here. 
the president doesn't agree. Tamarind trees occupy a spot that would be needed on the embassy lawn for the helicopters to land. The ambassador, a sudden Arbor supporter, refuses to have them chopped down. For the moment, that stalls evacuation. It's never supposed to be the embassy that's seeing the copters anyway. It was supposed to be the airport, but Murphy's Law would take care of that. South Vietnamese troops start firing at each other near the defense office at the airport. Some defecting, others not. Then two rockets from North Vietnamese attack planes hit and kill U.S. Marines. They are the last two casualties of Vietnam. The embassy is now go, and the Marines cut the trees. This will be the main spot of evacuation, and buses will actually take those from the airport to the, to the embassy eventually. At the embassy, a lot of havoc, a lot of dismay. People in the streets get the word. The American embassy distributed a 15-page booklet, safe, standard instruction, and advice in an emergency to those who can be evacuated. The booklet has a map and the evacuation points. Let's them know that Bing Crosby is that code, etc. And it's important to state here that evacuations have already taken place at the point by the time you're getting to April 29th and April 30th, 1975. Some 50,000 Vietnamese, South Vietnamese, have been evacuated in the months and weeks before the events. The peace accords of 1973 left North Vietnam forces armed and in the country, still active. As the tapes between Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger would reveal, a lot of the negotiating involved involved just allowing enough time, a decent interval between the peace accord and the collapse of the country. All that was left was for the North Vietnamese to march. An hour into the operation, 18 copter trips have been made. 956 people are evacuated. Around the same time, buses at the airport bringing evacuees to the embassy are stopped by South Vietnamese troop it takes, who are at least being not compliant, possibly defecting. It takes, it takes a threat from General Carey to send helicopter gunships over there and start attacking them to get the South Vietnamese army to release the buses. The helicopter flights are constant. By 4 p.m., 2,000 are already on the aircraft carrier. 4,500 by 5 p.m. Then, unfortunately, at 6 o'clock, there's a crash. Two pilots are lost. Two other crew from the helicopters rescued. Fortunately, no evacuees on those flights. They were returning. This slows the operation down a bit, but nonetheless, by 9, 6,393 evacuees are on the aircraft carrier. The U.S. Defense Attaché Office is torched. Don't want the enemy getting any of that information. The embassy is the only escape point left now. Vietnamese know it, and they gather there. They continue to gather there. Not everyone even in the embassy compound who was allowed in through the gates, or who got through the gates otherwise, has been evacuated yet. There's still several hundred. At 3 a.m., President Ford orders that there will be 19 more helicopters and no more. He's weighed all the information and the risk. North Vietnamese Army units are too close. No copters after 3.45 a.m. by any means. The ambassador, and this is an order, will be on the last flight. (laughs) Meanwhile, at the embassy, some 5,000 are on the perimeter. 
with the order to evacuate, the Marines now form a perimeter and start to pull away from the gates. They will eventually go into the embassy chancery building and lock the doors. Then lock the elevator. As they're doing this, now unguarded, the gates are overflowed and people start coming over. A nearby fire truck is used to now crash through the gate's doors. And there's no doubt on April 29th and the 30th, the evacuation is more chaotic and faster than what they expected. They perhaps thought there'd be a little more time that South Vietnamese forces might hold off. The problem is units were defecting, unable to put up much resistance. It was well known American troops had stopped offensive operations in January of 73. Vietnam is a major issue throughout Nixon's first term, and it's a major issue in the election of 1972. George McGovern is the Democratic candidate. He is hammering the Nixon administration on this. It is his best issue. McGovern's probably too liberal to be elected unless the election turns on this issue and unless new young voters, this is the first election after the 26th Amendment, come to the polls on the Vietnam issue. Henry Kissinger is beginning marathon talks uh, in Paris, trying to get a deal before the election. There's disagreement between, you probably have some agreement between the U.S. and North Vietnam. South Vietnam isn't ready to sign on. The U.S. asks for delays. Hanoi is upset. They broadcast the terms of the deal and attack the U.S. for delaying. Nixon and Kissinger make a decision. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On October 26th, and that is, they go out, send Henry Kissinger out, the president's national security advisor, tells the press, peace is at hand. Don't listen to what the South Vietnamese are saying, the North Vietnamese are saying, Peace is at hand. He's not wrong. Um, there will be a deal. It does actually uh, get to a point where the deal is off and then the deal is back on and things like that. The peace at hand statement is um, is interesting. It shows that Kissinger was somebody who had a lot of cachet with the press and with the American people. He could go out there and make a statement like that and be believed. I mean, I'm not sure if uh, Pompeo or Blinken, or Hillary Clinton, or John Kerry, you know, went out there and said that. Maybe Colin Powell, right, at the time anyway. 
go out there and say something like that, it would be believed. But it works. And it's enough for Nixon to really kill the issue in the 1972 election. And it's a blowout for Nixon. The statement's not a lie. Peace really was at hand, and they'd shortly make a deal. And that deal, there's no other way to look at it than it's a deal between the United States and North Vietnam to allow the United States to, with some honor, withdraw from Vietnam. Um, as would later be revealed in those tapes, this allowing some kind of interval so that the country doesn't collapse immediately. The governments aren't allowed to say anything about attacking each other to call, you know, North Vietnam must accept South Vietnam as a country. That's not going to last long. And the United States is really the only one pulling its forces out in that agreement. So it is really an agreement between Nixon. If you ask me, it's an agreement between Nixon and his own conscience or his political ability to say he left with peace with honor. I talked about this issue in 2006, one of my first podcasts called How to End a War. Bad microphone. So it can be effectively argued that President Nixon ended the war in Vietnam. But did he end the war in Vietnam? Or did he simply get an acceptable, plausible excuse to withdraw? Historians debate this point, but it seems pretty clear. An agreement that allowed North Vietnamese troops to remain in South Vietnam. And the only exchange is that the North Vietnamese government would not call for the destruction of the South Vietnamese government, but again, in terms of actual military force, North Vietnamese troops would still be in South Vietnam. That really seems on its face as an agreement that's merely designed to allow for American troops to withdraw. Now, it's important to say Nixon makes a statement that to South Vietnam, in order to secure their support, that he will provide what support is necessary in two ways. One is the U.S. is not allowed to send new arms to South Vietnam, but if South Vietnam's equipment is damaged, let's say they lose a tank, the U.S. can replace that tank. Also, Nixon secretly promises air support to South Vietnam. This is where the finger-pointing starts in between President Nixon and then President Ford, who replaces Nixon after the Watergate scandal. Congress has no appetite. Really, the American people at this time have no appetite for continued war in Vietnam. For anything, you know, if we're going to send troops in, one of them gets killed and then we're back in the war. No appetite for it, not even for airstrikes. Congress bans any funds being used for, um, for operations in, in Vietnam without approval from Congress. Okay, all of that. So um, that's what sets our stage here. There's already been a peace accord that has drained the country of U.S. troops. It's very similar, by the way, to some of the events of today. Extremely similar. When you think about it, it's a, it's a peace accord from a previous president. In that case, same party. In this case, different parties. In the case of Afghanistan, you have the Trump and the Doha agreements bringing in, um, releasing prisoner of war, committing to withdrawal of American troops. And you have that same kind of dynamic, though, where there's the promise of if you violate the agreement, we'll move in. And it's similar in both cases. You're negotiating with someone who probably is going to violate that agreement. You know, Getting a little into my opinion, but... 
A couple more things to describe. One is that the ambassador, Grant Martin now, last flight is getting close. There's, there's an order. There'll be no more Vietnamese on the flights, only U.S. personnel. They get the Marines who were sent to support, who were sent for crowd control on helicopters off. The, the pilot has an order <laughs> written on his own person that he will, he must, he, his airship cannot, his helicopter cannot leave without Ambassador Graham Martin. It's from President Ford directly. Graham Martin refuses to go. He is told by the Marines he will be arrested if he does not. He goes. On the copter he goes. The copter takes off with most of the Marines. The Marines decide the original Marines, about 35, whose job it is to guard the embassy, stay. It's their mission. That's the protocol. The others that came in to support go off on the copters and off the air, aircraft. Now, something weird happens here. Nobody's quite sure why. The copter that takes those troops off at uh, 543 says, Tiger is out. All the air units in Saigon that are operating now misread that as the mission is over. These 35 Marines are still on the U.S. Embassy roof. The South Vietnamese who wanted to evacuate are have now busted open the door, gone up the stairs. They don't need the elevator. The elevator's locked. They can't use that. Gone up the stairs, and they have to put a heavy locker and some heavy fire extinguisher equipment in front of the door to block them from coming up on the roof. Also, they throw in tear gas grenades. But this isn't their only concern. The Marines up there are starting to hear, they're seeing um, North Vietnamese tanks roll in. They're hearing gunfire in nearby buildings, louder with each minute. They make a pact. We are Marines. We'll defend what we have to, and we'll die like Marines. This may be our Alamo. North Vietnamese take over the presidential palace, put the North Vietnam flag up. They'll pretty soon have the embassy. It takes some two hours, and finally, they're able to get word that we're still here, and a copter is dispatched to rescue them. Journalists are going to be, that are left, that's still an international cable open, they're going to be interviewing the North Vietnam leader, a North Vietnamese general in that embassy. It's... There are thousands of uh, South Vietnamese who go to the Saigon River and get into boats and self-evacuate. There are, the rest are in the aircraft carrier. All told, there will be 139,000 South Vietnamese who will be evacuated. Many of them will find a home in the United States and Congress votes for a relocation act. It's signed May 23rd, 1975 allocates $305 million for the Department of State, $100 million for the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare for the resettlement of Vietnamese and Cambodian refugees in the United States. Covers transportation, processing, reception, resettlement for 130,000 Vietnamese, Laotians, and Cambodians. Most are transported, you know, after a stop in Manila, they're transported to Guam, Move to Florida, California, Fort Chafee, Arkansas, Fort Indian Town Gap, Pennsylvania. Security checks performed. 
none of them would be sent back to Vietnam under any circumstances. There's still frantic scenes of the aircraft carrier. There are helicopters. South Vietnamese pilots are told, look, we don't have room for your helicopters. Just ditch it into the, into the water. During the course of the operations, an unknown number of South Vietnamese helicopters flew out of what remained of South Vietnam to the fleet. Around 12 o'clock, five or six RNAF UH-1 um, were circling around Blue Ridge. The pilots have been instructed after dropping off their passengers to ditch their helicopters, and then they would be picked up by one of the ship's tenders. The pilot of one of the Hueys had been told to ditch off the port quarter of the ship, but seemed reluctant. Instead, he jumps out, ditching his helicopter, thinking it'll coast over the carrier. It does not. And it crashes on the side of the Blue Ridge, causing some damage. Luckily, no one hurt, but not a great moment. That wasn't a good event. What was a much better event was when a plane is flying over and back and forth over the aircraft carrier and then drops a note. And the note says, I don't have any fuel. I need to land. If you could clear some space, (laughs) I can land. Um, It turns out. It turns out to be one of the lead pilots from the South Vietnamese Air Corps, Air Force, Major Buang. He executes the, the Admiral gives the order, ditch those helicopters and they go right into the ocean. They go right into the ocean. It was some $10 million of equipment was ditched into the ocean without a thought. Um, Buang makes the landing. It's an incredible landing because he does not have the type of hook needed to attach to the cable on the aircraft carrier to stop his progress. So he has to do it manipulating his aircraft, manipulating the wings in the right way and braking properly to land on such a small space. He does. And he and his wife leave. There's a fun that the sailors on the ship uh, start to get uh, Wang and his family situated in the country. Now, you know, Again, I just bring some of these things up. I think it's pretty important to, uh, you know, maybe, yes. Decades-long involvement in Vietnam, perhaps a failure. April 75. No. Okay. So, uh, Saigon comparisons, I think that was inevitable. I think some of the images match up. I am not going to argue that they don't. You're seeing people fleeing the airport trying to grab on a carrier just like they were trying to grab on copters and and other things in the in the moments of Saigon. So certainly, if we're to be guided by images, as we often are when we look at news, you know, there's a lot of similarities there. And the symbolism that that exit is sim- symbolic of what perhaps American capabilities are. Are we better at perhaps at some of the short operations rather than long extended stays? You know, um, George W. Bush campaigned against nation building in 2000 and then tried to implement such a policy uh, or got us started down that path during his presidency. If you talk about this being the president's Saigon and it being a really bad political moment, I mean, it could. I certainly see this as a problem for midterms. Midterms overall are going to be a problem for the Democratic Party going into 2022. It's the first term of a president that's historically indicated for losses. They have a very, very 
narrow majority in the House. I mean, the signs are there. The other thing that goes on is you don't need a coherent agenda in opposition to take back the House. So all these and all the little things add up. So this will be one of many issues, perhaps, that if it's not reversed with some major success, perhaps does impact Biden in 2022. When you start talking about 2024 and presidents, I'm not as sure. I'm not sure that this image lasts because it's so tied to the previous history of Afghanistan and and Iraq, which is right there with it. And Bush's policy to pull resources from the war in Afghanistan to fight in Iraq, well-documented. The shock and surprise of Tommy Franks, his general, and others when that order was given, when that strategy was decided on. Long history there. Politically, if we say this is the president Saigon, right, we have to then look at what did Saigon do. And in 1976, which is the election that President Ford runs in, you would think if this was the worst moment for his presidency that we'd be hearing a lot about it in the campaign. So I reviewed the acceptance speech of his opponent, Jimmy Carter, the debates, and the TV television commercials during the campaign. I do not see if, if Saigon was this bad moment for him, you would see probably in that acceptance speech. It's no the word Saigon is not in Jimmy Carter's acceptance speech. When he talks about Vietnam, he's just talking about the government and secrecy. Same in the debates. The issue comes up in terms of secrecy, in terms of not telling everyone about what was in the peace deals. He's talking about some of the secret negotiations and um, and a lot about Watergate. Same with the TV ads during that campaign. It's my opinion that Saigon doesn't really hurt Ford that much. He almost wins that election. And it's the issue of pardoning Nixon and Watergate that most people attribute that loss to. You know, I think you have to give the American people more credit. Here's here's another thing to make. Now and in 1975, this is an excellent comparison to make. Now and in 1975, there's no interest as expressed in polls from the American people of sending in large amounts of troops. There wasn't in 1975 in regards to Vietnam. And there isn't in 2021 in regards to Afghanistan. You see some support for maybe a small force. Uh, you, you see criticism of how the evacuation was handled. All of these things. Then as in now, probably more now, we can expect a lot of criticism who, from those who are in the service. I mean, I can just imagine to see Bagram Air, Air Base taken over by the Taliban when that was the main point for those who served in there's probably you know a lot of sentiment and feeling attached to it i know that's going to be a factor and it's but on the other hand you have the argument that how long did you want to stay in this country did you want another generation another 20 years of people in this country to prevent that outcome and that was the decision made and uh biden has made it forcefully he's doubled down on it you know, and the d- decision, just like in Vietnam, it was a pathway started by the predecessor. I want to thank you for listening. The website is myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Please go there. Also, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts. That helps us spread the word in any way you can. Thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, 
former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.